Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 138 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday morning, October 9th, 2019. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. <laughs> you got this look. I wish y'all could see Steve's look. He's got this sort of, uh, uh, I'm at the edge, at the precipice kind of look on his face. I'm also hungry because it's Yom Kippur. And, okay. And, and, you know, I... This I, is adding to your... I, I really shouldn't even be recording a podcast on Yom Kippur. I shouldn't be working on Yom Kippur. Sorry, God. Um, but my, my creative New York liberal Jewish interpretation of Yom Kippur is as long as I fast... I can still perform other services. It's very, very reform of you. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Ultra-reform, you might say. <laughs> Ultra-reform. But, but I will say to those of you who are listening to this on the far side, I hope you had a, an easy fast and Happy New Year and, and all of those things. Yep. Merry New Year. Merry New Year. So, Trade, Trading Places reference. Yeah. So, so you know, it's funny. We, we didn't record last week, which is, by the way, mostly my fault. Sorry, everybody. Um and it occurs to me that, you know, we just have nothing to talk about. I mean, there's the yeah, baseball should ju- playoffs. Should we just talk sports ball NBA the entire China, time because there's I nothing mean, to talk about? You know. Um, and then it occurs to me that we have two different stories, three different stories, either of which, when you and I started this podcast, we would have thought merited an entire episode. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, right? And we have a story so ridiculous that it bumps the turkey ridiculousness. Off the top page. I was about to say until you specified. I was like, well, wait, which one? Which one takes the cake? I think I know which one takes the cake. It's got to be. So let's start with the run of show. Run of show. Impeachment Palooza, impeachment, followed by impeachment, uh, imp- uh, 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 White House White House Counsel Letter of Palooza. Yeah. That, so that that is obviously going to take a lot of discussion, but but very worthy of, of discussion as well. The the Turkey Syria Kurdish uh, fiasco that's begun unfolding. Ooh. And, Spoiler alert. And then, third, we've got uh, a pretty remarkable, it's it's down the weeds, but it's very like bread and butter, nuts and bolts, national security law. Right. We this, have some new FISC and FISC Court of Review opinions as part of a set concerning Section 702. We should say, I mean, these are actually not so newly declassified opinions, right? The opinions actually are from 2018. Right, right. So these are, these are, these are all, they were released yesterday as a set to explain what has happened with uh, Section 702 certifications on a particular issue that we talked about back in episode 55. Oh, you did your homework. I did a little homework. It's it, fortunately we do put tags on our <laughs> on our uh, post. So, anyways, we'll talk about what's going on there, and then the and, end, and I'm going to try to convince you that it proves why why those of us who are pushing for a special advocate in the FISA court were, were right. Oh yeah, you want that that part? I have no doubt we'll agree on. I think we're, we're on I, depending on what you mean by a special advocate. But yeah, I thought <laughs> the amicus function proved its uh, value. In that instance, quite. Um, I'll try to convince you that some of the uh, breathless reaction and reporting on the on the uh, decision about like you know, oh my God, look what they disclosed is is badly overstated. Um, but anyway, are we really going to not, not disagree about anything today? Oh, you're not going to disagree with that? I, Dang. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll disagree yeah. just just, be, just for sport. All right, I'll try to I'll try to put some more edge into I, it. I have a friend. I don't I don't know if you've any friends like this. I have a friend who. Relatively early in our friendship, um, whenever we would be hanging out, would sort of say something completely preposterous um, that it would turn out that she didn't actually believe, but she was just trying to provoke me into a debate. Uh, most people have an uncle like that. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, that is, uh, you know, that's not my cup of tea, as no, you know. No, no. Um, but, you know, it's worth noting since we're 138 episodes into this and not everyone has listened the whole <laughs> time. Um, Fooled uh, you. It's probably the case that many people think you and I agree like in a much broader sense than we do, right? No, it is. We end up agreeing a lot because yeah. of the nature of the particular things we've been talking about lately. Uh, but we actually whole, have some pretty significant disagreements, which, yeah, which we thought, stick. which we thought would come out more. I, I, the, there's a real category error here, right? Which is like we started this podcast because we thought that there would be all these interesting questions where we just totally disagreed, and then along came the Trump administration and changed the conversation to all these things where you and I completely agree that what they're doing is nuts. Right, and I think it's relevant for us to underscore this before we le- leap into the impeachment topic. Um, I think that. People need to. I think it's useful people to hear that, especially when I'm agreeing with you about certain things. People should understand I'm coming at this from what I would have described at least years ago as a conservative Republican kind of perspective. Um, 
I now think it's those labels have really lost value, uh, to put it mildly, and so I don't really want to try to put labels on it at all. Um, but I, I have a uh, much different political perspective on plenty of issues than you do. Sure. But we share uh, broad agreement, as I still think most Americans do. Yeah. But but there's there's an impactful percentage of Americans who are willing to look past some of the rule of law and democracy and core American value concerns that that you and I share, and within which there's tons of room for good policy disagreement. Yeah, I I, I agree. I mean, I think all that's well said and, and well taken. I would just add, I think the last couple of years have radicalized my politics a little bit, right? That that I would have described myself as recently as three years ago as you know pretty moderate. I mean, a Democrat, like a you know a progressive Democrat, but not a not a fire breather. And you're feeling the pull. And, you're, are you feeling the burn? Is that I, what you're telling I me? am not feeling the burn. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> I am not. Um, um, my 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 heart rests with our with our former colleague. Um, and I'll let I'll let our listeners figure that one out. Um, but the the. Um, I you know I didn't used to be political on Twitter. Like if I go back and look at my old tweets, yeah. you know I was they were substantive and they were critical of everybody because I'm you know I'm a skeptical you know uh, uh, observer. It's my job. Um, it's just it is so hard these days to not feel the urge to just say this is wrong and you know it went in a conversation that is cast in us versus them. Right? If you're not us, you're them. And so I just I feel I feel like this is sort of a gravitational pull that I hope we're able to escape. Can can I make the argument that I've had a similar uh, pull, maybe, but it's not towards the edges; it's towards the middle. Mm-hmm. That the the can I be radicalized further into centrism, into centrism. and moderation yeah, yeah, and pragmatism? Yeah, maybe. Because um, I got to say, it I just can't believe how little public political representation the middle actually has at this point. Um, that, that to me, is, is such a glaring indictment of, of the system. Some people love it because it's exciting and fun to have clearly drawn lines at the edges. Um, is, that's not me. Uh, well, the, 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 we'll miss the middle when it's gone, and, it's, and I think it's, yeah. it's disappearing. I'm still here. Well, and that's the thing. I think that, I mean, this is, this is not our show, and, and I think, you know, this is my own sort of soapbox, but I think – Part of this is also partisan gerrymandering, right? That in a world oh, yeah. in which, yeah. in a world in which it's so much more important to win your primary than your general, exactly. Of course, you're going to run to your flank, whether yep. it's the you left flank or the right. Yeah, so I, I agree with that, and I agree with that that causal account. Anyway, all um, right. Uh, so, on so, to impeachment. So, so I, we wouldn't have. I, I don't think we would have had much to say about impeachment this week, right? I mean, that like things were proceeding. There was the awkward sort of Ambassador Sondland episode. Blah blah blah. Typical, typical. And then yesterday we got this eight-page letter from the White House Counsel, and I was, I was sort of, I was. I mean, it's hard to be surprised by anything that comes out of the White House these days, Bobby. And I was stunned. Well, which part? So there's, there's plenty about it. That I'll, I'll name one to start. Um, the assertion, the bald assertion, which in many ways felt quite gratuitous and not really on point for the letter itself, of the complete total the assertion of complete and total propriety for the for the ukraine call yep right it was quote completely appropriate unquote right you know notwithstanding that any any reasonable reading of it at a minimum should allow someone any reasonable person should be able to look at that and say well it certainly looks bad maybe you could argue like maybe it wasn't really intended to be quid pro quo but it did it does look bad we certainly don't want to mention investigations of one's political opponents in these discussions. Um, but to just have the White House counsel just baldly asserting that, oh, by the way, there's nothing to see here. This is all perfectly fine. It's part of this this strategy of bald-faced uh, denial and reversal of the facts that seems to be pretty widely supported. It's not just the president, but many of the president's uh, facilitators, including the White House counsel, who are taking this position. So I guess I have two reactions. The first is um, I was stunned it was the White House counsel, right? That is to say, it's, right. it's, it's one thing if it's the White House press secretary. Right, right. That's that's like, kind of what right, it's, like, it's not like, the White House counsel's role to play the political. No, it's, yes. the White House, it's the I mean, yes, the White House counsel is the president's lawyer, right? But he's a lawyer. The presidency's lawyer, uh, right? Yeah, the, and 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 so right. So he has an obligation first to the office of the president, independent of its current holder, right? And second, he has ethical obligations. And so you know, I was stunned that it was the council who signed this, as opposed to like a statement from Stephanie Grisham. Um, right. Second, I also you know, this is me just not understanding the politics. I had thought that the White House was counting to a large degree on being able to sort of use. Um, 
objections to the process by which this all came out, the whistleblower stuff, to try to muddy the waters about what actually happened. And that part of the strategy was, you know, until there's some sort of definitive clarity about what actually happened, we can, there's plausible deniability for Republicans in Congress to say, well, that's what the Democrats say happened. But Maybe we need to take what, our time to investigate. Right. And, and the White House said, nope, that's what happened. And it's perfectly fine. And it's perfectly, and, you know, yeah. that's what happened. And it's a normalization strategy that simply by the brazenness of saying that there and, and this is reinforced, for example, when the president then in front of the camera says, you know, I think China should investigate right. the Bidens. Yep. And it creates this sense for people who are just having glancing contact with it. Well, like it can't be that bad. He's no one's you know, people say this publicly all the time. It's perfectly fine because they normalize it. And I think it's very purposeful. So maybe it's clearly purposeful, Bobby. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if in the, at the end of the day it's not a strategic miscalculation. And 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 part of that's because you know there are plenty of folks who I pay attention to on Twitter, right, who are not anti-Trumpers or at least not virulent anti-Trumpers. Um, you know, Republican congressional staffers, right, Republican political strategists, who I think reacted with like visible out like horror to this letter yesterday in ways that maybe we hadn't seen. Previously, that that yes, this totally does tell the story to the. This does have the normalizing effect for the president's supporters, and it sort of locks them into the narrative that they don't have to worry about fighting over what happened. They can just say yes, and it's fine. But you know, you talked about the middle, right? To whatever extent there's any middle left in Washington, man, this puts anyone who wasn't already inclined against the president into a, a sticky wicket. It, no question about that. I, look, I think that the overall strategic posture is. Delay things so it gets close enough to the election that then the election can determine it. Because if he gets reelected in the thick of all this, it opens up the door for making ratification right, by a the mandate. public. Right, right, exactly. So the, the game is don't let anything be too damaging right. and too resolved until you get to that point. But if the game is delay, that, that, so this is where I th – so I, I think the letter could have been a miscalculation on two fronts. One, it puts – if there are moderates left, it puts them in a terrible position, right? right? Because now maybe there are Republican members of the House or at least some Republican senators who would previously have been able to say, I haven't made up my mind, it's not clear what happened, blah, 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 who now have to go up, who now can be cornered yeah. to be up or down. Is this okay or not? Right. Um, but two, on the timing, I actually think yesterday's letter speeds everything up. Um, in two respects. So one, um, it provides the House additional impeachment fodder, right? One of the articles that yeah. was being considered against President Nixon before right. he resigned was Refusal obstruction. Refusal to cooperate. Um, but two, you know, I mean, I, this is a sort of a subtle point, but I think it's one that's clear in the case law. When courts get these kinds of, you know, inner branch squabbles, um, the courts are deeply hopeful that like accommodation, cooperation, yeah, sort of that the courts can sort of just mediate without without umpiring. Right. Um, like, hey, guys, you know, we're here if you can't work it out, but please work it out. Right. Um, the White House is saying that ain't going to happen. Exactly. No, I actually think there's a big spillover effect, not just on the impeachment-related subpoena enforcement litigations, but all the other panoply, including in New York, which we should we should know. Yes. Um, the tax. The, all so, the right. other circumstances where there are federal judges around the country with the piece of a Trump-related case where the government is saying— Slow down. Slow down and or don't take this action at all, where— Part of the background argument up until the impeachment inquiry got underway recently and we started seeing this uh, obstruction of it was, look, the political process is where these battles need to take place. But if it's become clear, and what could be clearer than the White House counsel's letter, that the Trump administration flat refuses to participate and is going to deny the impeachment inquiry any cooperation whatsoever, it seems. That if that's the case— You're daring the courts into You're action. daring the courts to be more assertive. And, and, I think, and I think the courts, whether they want to or not, are going to have no, no choice. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things the letter does is it radically increases the odds that by the end of this Supreme Court term, there's a Trump-related subpoena case in the Supreme Court. Right. So, you know, we should pause here to note uh, Judge Moreira decision Indeed. in the Southern District uh, requiring production of the tax returns. Well, can I can I be a little nerdy for a yeah, second? Yeah, yeah. Cl clarify exactly what he said. So the there's a there's a subpoena from the Manhattan, the New York County District Attorney, uh, City of New York, County of New York, State of New York. Um, well done. Uh, right, New York has five counties and five boroughs, and some of the names are different. That's really confusing. Um, <laughs> so New York County, which is Manhattan, Cyrus Vance, the DA, subpoenaed the president's tax returns as part of a state, right, or local investigation. Um, and in addition to opposing the subpoena in state court, 
the president and his lawyers went into federal court to seek an injunction against the subpoena. And what Judge Marrero held was nothing about the subpoena specifically, but rather under the doctrine of younger abstention, younger abstention. which I guess Just I'm teaching in younger. fed courts this spring. Yeah. Um, uh, he, had, he, he, he it was it would be an inappropriate exercise of equity to enjoin an ongoing state criminal proceeding. Just really quickly for the the non-Fed courtsners out there, um, Younger versus Harris is a 1971 Supreme Court case where the court gives um, force to the idea of equitable restraint, um, and the idea is that you can't usually use equity to enjoin a criminal prosecution. Um, there are exceptions, um, but Judge Moreau found that none of the exceptions were present here. And I think he's he's right on the merits. Now, this is going to go to the Second Circuit. It's going to go really quickly to the Second Circuit. Right. And I think the government, I think it's, I say the government because Trump has DOJ supporting him in this case, yeah. which, by the way, awkward. Um, I think part of what they're going to be arguing for is that there ought to be a new exception to Younger right. um, for, for so the president. So they're fighting an uphill doctrinal battle. You could imagine an opinion, therefore, from Marrero. And then eventually from the Second Circuit, yep. it's a real dry Fed courtsy. Look, younger, this is how it works. We don't get involved in this. We're not There's changing no younger. Change it here. But I don't think it's a fair description of Marrero's opinion in terms of the tone of it. Right? That's yeah. right. That's fair. He goes. He goes very far out of his way to show full appreciation of the larger context yep. and a real. And I think this is not surprising. Judge Marrero was not likely to be a, a strong presidential power no. enthusiast. No. But a real skeptic on uh, the, the underlying nature of these attempts and, to and, avoid. And I think this is, and this is, I think, part of what the White House may have been thinking, right? Which is that they're losing all of these cases. Right. Um, and they're going to lose all of these cases at least until they get to the Supreme Court. And, you know, I, I do think that the letter further empowers the courts to not stay their hand. Right in these cases, except Marrero actually is staying his hand. That's the whole point. But yeah. but further empowers the courts to not wait for the impeachment process to resolve any of these things that's politically. Right. That's exactly where we tie it back in. But I still think that you know th- this is the administration basically saying, all right, we're going to lose in court, so let's try to at least win in the, the court of public opinion, maybe. Um, and so the last thing I want to say about the letter. So the actual claim at the core of the letter is that the the reason why the president is justified in not cooperating is that the House is conducting a quote illegitimate unquote, impeachment inquiry. I just want to say, for the record, no. <laughs> um, so the the demands of the letter are that the the House has to vote up or down on authorizing an impeachment inquiry. That's not the rules of the House. True story. Um, or a statute or the Constitution. Uh, it's just a thing that they asserted, and then it becomes a talking point. So it's, I mean, I, I should say, it has happened, right? I mean, that is to say, in two yeah. prior presidential impeachment cases, the House did, in fact, have such a vote, but there are impeachments of non-president officers where that didn't happen. Like, there's no requirement it happen. Right. So it's not. Did, well, let's underscore this yeah. point because it is a talking point making yeah. the rounds. The Constitution says no such Nothing. thing. There's no statute that says such a thing. Nope. The only the relevant rule set, the place you look to find out what the rules are, it's whatever the current rules of the House of Representatives, which the con the Constitution in Article One empowers the House to make its own rules for purposes including this, and those rules don't, don't require, require this. this. Yep. Um, then there's the argument that uh, the process is violating the president's due process rights. Um, so oh, is this the I don't have a chance to cross-examine witnesses? Yes, I just want to say if you guys think of impeachment as sort of loosely analogous to a grand jury, right. um, defendants don't have any due process rights vis-a-vis a grand jury. The, the, the that's well, not the, pro- the, the process that is due does not entail the things he's asking. That's for. that's better said. That's better said. Um, so all this to say, so on the merits, these claims are legally borderline frivolous um, and no, certainly they're, they're, meritless. They, they crossed the border. Um, but they're, but they're, <laughs> Look at you. They're, they're over the border. But Ooh, you came to play today. Yeah, I did. But I don't think that uh, they're being offered for, for their legal effect. No. I think they're being offered for their symbolic effect. Totally. It's, it's multiply the issues, create fresh points, say things that to a non-lawyer are going to sound reasonable, such as, hey, don't I get a chance to cross-examine the people accusing me? Hey, that sounds reasonable to me. But Why a, is this all so it's illegitimate? A, it's a strategy designed to convince his base and nobody else. Exactly. And, and what that says to me is that he's convinced he's going to lose. At least, uh, at least in the house, right? Oh, yeah, I mean, well, that's the other thing that's kind of funny about it all. It's like, look, I, at a certain point, well, you and I have been talking about how uh, impeachment worthy Donald Trump is yes. for a long time. True. The idea that, like, well, we needed the Ukraine fiasco to, to tell us this. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I have to pause and just sigh in Steve-like fashion. <sighs> yes, it, right. That this this is but, that this is the straw that broke the camel's back. Does not does not yeah. sort of it does not make up for the the many other bricks that have fallen oh, right. over the last. So, two and so half the years. issue the issue is simply like: is there any reason to think that the Senate is moved to where it would take action? And so far, it doesn't appear so. 
Yeah, I mean, I I think I think Romney is trying to to to, to set an, yeah. a, an example for his colleagues to follow. And by, by the way, uh, I at least will take a hat off to Romney for yeah. uh, Mitt Romney for for being visible. Uh, yeah, Sass is has begun leaning in as well. I don't see anyone else doing it. No, although and, and a lot of people are piling on. You know, the moment they say anything, yeah. they get blasted. Like, hey, what then? Why not more? Why not more? Um, how about we just be glad somebody is at least beginning to break Listen, ranks? I've been, you know, I've been critical of of the Romney Sass flake. Yep. You know, you. Um, right. I, I I'm not critical of them right now. Like this is, you know, they're they're trying to, to create space for 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 principled Republican senators to right. to to support at least the inquiry, if not commit to a pre result. Yeah. And I think that should be, you know, we need 20. Yeah. Um, all right. So um, as if we needed other potential reasons for impeachment, right? <laughs> the president gave us one on Friday. Are you, are you talking about uh, the, the turkey? Uh, I am talking about the tur- and, talking and, turkey. And speaking of, speaking of Republican senators, talking actually, turkey, talking turkey is a pretty good one. Um, speaking of Republican senators actually showing some backbone vis-a-vis the president, look at Lindsey Graham. Yeah, that was, that was nice. You know, it's interesting that the modulation of pushback on this issue right. versus other right. issues. Rule of law, fair. Oh, but the Kurds? Oh well, in that case, well, it's, it just goes to show you there's more. There's more. It's a descriptive political space. That's you look like you've got something good. To show say. title. It has to be something about um, um, that's nobody's business but the Turks. That's no nice. Right? They can't be. They might be giants. They might be giants. That, come on, that's nobody's business but the Turks. That's. I mean, that's everything. Business but the. T- <laughs> that's pretty great. Why did Constantinople get the works? Isn't that Istanbul, the line? Istanbul, Constantinople. That's Istanbul. Yes. Um, okay. Sorry. I'm sorry. No, that's great. Sorry. It came to me in a moment. That's pretty great. Okay. So, all right. So let's that's talk about what happened. Currently. So, you know, this is not a. Sh- I mean, the the timing I think is surprising, but the underlying idea had been out there for a while that we were going to withdraw U.S. forces from Syria. Right. So, so this prompted contributed to Mattis, Mattis a year ago right. resigning, Over uh, Brett this. McGurk resigning. You know, the, the whole thing that Trump's, we've talked many times about his sort of neo-isolationist sort of inclinations and how to some people that's actually a redeeming quality. Be that as it may, he's he's wanted out. I, I don't think it's entirely coincidental that that is a huge strategic win for the Russians. Yes. And for the Assad regime. Yes. Um, and... For and for Turks. Turkey. And right. that hasn't been obvious enough. But but last time, I believe it was another call from Erdogan that it immediately was. resulted in this precipitous sort of like, all right, now we're going to get out. Um, er- the- Erdogan apparently has the president's number. Oh, uh, I would. Hey, can we get the Memcon from that? There you go. Calls, that, well please? said, sir. Um, so anyway, yeah, there's a couple of Trump Towers in, in uh, Istanbul, are there not? Uh, they're building one. Yeah, well, <laughs> they're going to build a whole bunch. Uh, maybe you can go. Live there. Um, so, anyways, uh, the, with this withdrawal screws uh, the SDF forces. The whole point of this is to f- remove the American tripwire, the American special operations personnel that were in there. They were in harm's way, and that was a deterrent. It was not there to be a deterrent to the Turks, but it functioned that way, right? Because, because um, just from the from the from the Tur- from Turkey's strategic perspective, um, it's one thing to send in troops into basically, you know largely deserted parts of northern Syria mm-hmm. when the only resistance you're going to meet is the Kurds, who you don't like to begin with, right? It's another thing when that means going head-to-head against the U.S. Special Forces. Well, so I think that the nature of the particular concern would be they're going to use the air power. They're going to, they're going to use the fact that the SDF has no, no ability. Air power. We are their air power. Right. So if that's gone, then they can just bomb the Kurds. And that's begun, I understand, yes. it today. It's yes. begun. Um, well, if special operators from the United States are embedded with them, that's a super high-risk step to take. They couldn't do it. Now they don't have to because Erdogan calls Trump. Trump gets off the phone and announces that he's and doing this. It. He just tweets, tweets it. it out. And in the process, says words that I, in, in all the pantheon of outrageous things that the man has said. <laughs> Might be the lowest? Uh, no, it's not the lowest, because it, 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 but the most sort of just like nakedly revealing of the egotism, because I don't think he meant to be funny. He literally said that he would decide in his, quote, great and unmatched Wisdom. Ah, uh, yes. I don't know that Kim Jong Un would say something this cartoonishly. Uh, I, I I lack the words. I lack the words. For you this. lack the great and unmatched wisdom to I, respond. I lack the great and unmatched vocabulary to describe what is going on here. Anyways, because um, that wasn't that you, you had an idea for an episode title that was stolen by Rational Security, right? Oh, they they have they have the great and unmatched wisdom edition already out there. I was hoping we could use that, but yeah. they always have the best titles. 
So although no, that's nobody's business, but the turfs I think is going to be a that's pretty, pretty good. good. That's you pretty know, good. I think we'll get some hats off for that one. At least from they might be giants. Indeed. So dude, that would be a fun shout out. They might be giants. We're talking about you. That would be pretty amazing. We'll we'll we'll, we'll add them in the in the yeah. in the tweet. So um, the the thing that I zeroed in on, there's a lot one can say about yes. this: the, the betrayal of allies, the long-term cost to American credibility, the uh, the loss of the strategic position that that being there afforded us, having them there afforded us. But the effect on opening the door to to the revival of the Islamic State yes. is so obvious. Yes. And, and, and right. I, I'm almost, I'm dumbfounded that, that this isn't more obvious that what's going to happen in, inevitably if Turkey succeeds in its strategic objective of, of breaking the military power of the SDF, the SDF is going to stop running those detention facilities. They already have. No, there was a story this morning about how they've already been diverting personnel from the well, detention. I know they're, they're, they're calibrating the threat, right? Yeah. This is the only leverage they've got at this point. Yep. They have statements saying that, look, we're already starting to pull guards away, but they haven't. Right. Open the they doors and the walked doors. away. Yep. That is going to happen yep. if the Turks succeed to the extent that they want to. Yep. And um, there's no and there's no one to stop it. No, there's no one else to stop it. And so Trump knows this, and in his in his initial tweet announcements, specifically says uh, the United States is not going to take responsibility for the detainees anymore, even though we're not currently holding them. And instead, the Turks will be responsible. It is a transparent attempt to pass the buck for what will be a cataclysmic revival of the Islamic State. We'll get an Islamic State 2.0, or if you prefer, an, an AQI 3.0, whatever the, the iteration is, um, made possible by the, the mass release of thousands of these fighters, if that's what happens. It's not guaranteed, but it's increasingly likely. And the idea that the president can wash his hands right. of this. I mean, so this is the, the state. So this all came in this like this this weird two paragraph statement, right? Putatively from the press secretary, although it's written like Trump wrote it himself, right? Um, and the the last sentence of it is: Turkey will now be responsible for all ISIS fighters in the area captured over the past two years in the wake of the defeat of the territorial caliphate by the United States. Turkey's not going to be responsible for them. Turkey doesn't give a crap. Well, even if they did, they're not going to physically be able to do it. It's not like there's going to be some handover ceremony at these detention right. facilities. Right. Turkey's not going to send ground forces into Syria to take over the control of the SDF facilities. It's not, and then own it themselves. And, right. I mean, yeah. so, so you know, I understand. Listen, I understand the president's frustration toward Europe. Right. I understand that there's a there's a reasonable argument to be made that the U.S. has not received nearly the amount of international assistance it should have in this context. But this is, you know, the, this is a tantrum. Right. And, and by, well, what it is, I think it's a very conscious attempt to pin the rose for what will be some number of years down the road, a lot of bloodshed. Yeah. Trying to pin it or, or to get it away from himself. I'm sorry. You break it, you buy it. Yeah. Um, and I just, yeah. I, we would have, if this had, if we hadn't had a letter yesterday, like this would have been the first, you know, I think probably 40 minutes of this episode. I just, you know, I, I so I was on, um. I was on a plane on Friday. Was I on a plane? I feel like yeah, I was you, on had a plane. A, you had a tweet about being offline. Oh, for Sunday a night. Hours. It wasn't Friday. It was Sunday night, right? So Sunday night, I was flying to DC because I had this crazy day on Monday, you know, in DC, and I was on Frontier, and Frontier doesn't have Wi-Fi, you know, which I thought was a good thing. Like, yeah, hey, nice. I'll, I'll be off Wi-Fi for two and a half hours, um, and I land to this statement, and it's just like, what the what? Like, yeah. how is this? How is this what we're doing? The other thing I was going to say is, you know, the president dangled this out there, I think, last December, right? And I thought that the pushback he got from Republicans was actually a meaningful, you know, sort of uh, uh, whatever de-escalation, right? And convince, and he's like, oh, never mind. I talked to Erdogan again. We're we're back on. Yeah, and at the end of the day, we should we should know because this is you know our, our formal expertise. Of course, would be the legal aspects. Yeah. It's it's within his. He can do this. He there, absolutely. There's he, no. It's entirely clear that he has the authority to order this. There's no legal objection to what he's doing. There's just the note. There's just the argument that he is betraying our foreign policy commitments to the Kurds. That he is radically exacerbating the national security threat ISIS will pose going forward, and that he's making it very difficult for any other group in a similar situation to ever trust the word of the United States. Ever again. Yeah, yeah. Other than that, though, <laughs> this is great. Other than that, the play was fine. Yes. Um, shall we talk about. You sockdologizing old claptrap. <laughs> That's not easy to say. No. Sockdologizing is a word we don't get enough of. No, mm. no. It's like trypsodecophobia. <laughs> um, so, section 702, we uh, talked about a Triskodecophobia. Hello. Like fear of the number 13. Yeah. Okay. So, 702. The FISA court. Yeah. Um, we don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole of trying to restate uh, everything there is to say. It's a whole deep dive thing we've done before. But we need a little framing in context to put 
the news yesterday, the disclosed opinions from the FISA court in proper context. So let me take a quick shot at a, uh, a thumbnail sketch. Shoot. Right. So first and foremost, we're not talking about FISA, traditional FISA Title I activity where you surveil a particular not conversation warrants. where it's an U.S. person or, or there's other U.S. equities that lead to a requirement to go to the FISA court to get an order. Uh, instead, we're talking about the Section 702 system, which is all about the particular and peculiar scenario in which the target to be surveilled, the communication target, it's a non-U.S. person outside the United States. And normally that would actually just be 12333 collection. You wouldn't be talking about a role for the courts at all. But there's a scenario in which that person's communications are traveling in some sense, either through an account or on the network of a U.S. company or some company that is subject to U.S. court compulsion and jurisdiction. And of course, it'd be great if there were a process to, from the government's perspective, it'd be great if there were a process to compel that company to actually actively cooperate in the in the collection of the communications to produce them. And so you have both service providers, platform providers like you know Google and Gmail, and you could have a foreign target who's using a Gmail account. Well, 702 is a way to oblige Google to cooperate without having to go through the full-fledged FISA process in collecting that person's communication off that account. And then, so that's downstream, or what is sometimes called PRISM. Uh, and then there's also upstream, where you have a company like AT&T that maybe owns and operates uh, the pipes the, the, on which all sorts of internet communications are passing through and have some ability to filter to identify to-from communications or maybe even references to the, the handle, the selector for uh, that account. So it's a company that could be compelled to assist in filtering, looking at the overall traffic and finding, you know, uh, I'm an al-Zawahiri at gmail.com's emails going back and forth on the network. 702 is a process where uh, the government gets one-year certifications that its overall set of targeting and minimization procedures for identifying a particular number or handle, as they say, a selector, um, for a communication uh uh, means like Gmail uh, is associated with a foreign person not it's not inside the United States and then going to these companies and making them them making them then cooperate so that's the idea um, one of the many issues associated with the 702 model is the question of there, there are issues with the front end collection but that's not what today's topic is it's about the back end so you've begun collecting the fruits of 702 collection and things are ending up in sort of a, let's just call it the 702 database and then obviously the whole point of this is so that various analysts can run queries against the database to find relevant foreign intelligence information or as we come to learn later on, or maybe also using it for criminal investigative purposes, this becomes controversial because the theory of allowing this compulsory process to exist and not having it be subject to the regular FISA Title I individualized order process is that it's, well, it's a special need for foreign intelligence purposes. Nonetheless, there's some amount of it putting in names for, there, there are queries that could result in information relevant for a criminal investigation. And that led to a particular critique, uh, the backdoor search critique. That is that that maybe what would happen is the FBI would just start punching in U.S. person names and, you know, to facilitate its ordinary criminal investigations by taking advantage of the fact that there is this database. Do we have do we have anything in there on, on John Doe? Exactly. John Doe, the American who maybe is a narcotics trafficker. Sure. Um, so that was the fear that it becomes sort of a back-end targeting. The statute says you can't reverse target in the formal sense of choosing your foreign targets in order to hopefully incidentally get the U.S. person comms that are your real interest. So formally speaking, that's forbidden. But the fear was that, that practically speaking, we end up with a version of that. And so when the FISA, when 702 was up for renewal most recently, the FISA Amendments Reauthorization Act, which was enacted in early 2017, 2018, 2018. Um, we talk about in episode 55, there had been a push to try to subject those queries to sort of a, right. a second stage individual warrant right. requirement. Yep. Which we talked about in some detail. Yeah, exactly. And in the end, Congress chose not to go that far and instead say, uh, look, basically, yes, for a certain category of purely run-of-the-mill non-national security criminal predicated investigations, yes, you'd have to go back and get an individual FISA order. But there were a lot of exceptions. If you're querying for foreign intelligence purposes, if you're querying for criminal investigative purposes where the 
criminal predicate is a certain national security related set of offenses that are pretty broadly defined, pretty loosely defined, uh, you don't have to. So there was sort of a compromise approach accompanied by data collection obligations, including specific obligations to use technical means to make sure that there are records showing what kind of US person queries are going on. Against that backdrop, so that you have you have that happening, and then there's the annual process of getting FISA court certification for the resulting set of policies and procedures to implement and stay within the boundaries of these rules. Turns out, FBI, unlike NSA and CIA, FBI was having trouble with this. Uh, it, if I understood the materials released yesterday correctly, it looks to me like NSA and, and CIA have wired into their procedures a technical solution that creates the data gathering required. And FBI simply argued it didn't have to do that. They had a kind of a crabbed interpretation of the statute. And the FISA court shot them down. They appealed it to the FISA court of review. And in a remarkable, you know, a very rare instance to even have an opinion from the FISA court yeah, review. I think like the, this is like the fourth or fifth it's we've ever four, seen. I think it's the fourth one we know about. Yeah. Um, you've got the, uh, you have NRA directives, NRA sealed case. Then you have the uh, uh, FOIA the litigation one. The FOIA one. standing one. Yeah, and now this. Yep. Uh, so it's this one is NRA DNI slash AG 702H certifications 2018. We need better case names, everybody. I know. Come on, y'all. Um, so anyways, uh, the Fisker rejects the government's argument too and so which by the way is 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 not the first the standing the standing one was the first but right. this is the first merits loss for the government ever in the FISA court of review and so so at one we, level oh, sorry, that we know about right so i would argue like that's all great but this is pretty small ball it's it's crazy to me that fbi was trying to hold this line it seems pretty clear that a reasonable reading of the statute would lead should lead them to do what nsa and cia apparently were doing too and it was easily fixed i don't know why they thought it was smart to fight on this obviously they they did, and they tried. They got smacked down. It's been fixed. Not a huge issue. The, the headlines were concerning a second issue that came up along the way. So in the original Fisk decision that included all that stuff, there also was a revelation that's now public that FBI had compliance problems, never mind how they were tracking their queries, the substance of what FBI agents were allowed to do in terms of which queries were proper and which ones weren't, it turns out FBI itself reported a, a whole series of compliance instances or incidents that were uh, somewhat, it was hard to tell from the redactions, but seemed somewhat significant to the point where the court said, taken as a whole, in totality, the actual implementation of the uh, rules and procedures at FBI end up violating the Fourth Amendment. And now here's where it gets interesting. Some people, I think, may have misread this as a determination that each query is subject to Fourth Amendment reasonableness and Fourth Amendment, perhaps even warrant requirements. That's not at all what the court said. In fact, the court expressly says the, uh, the amici who are arguing the position on behalf of the public's interest, which to your point earlier, mm -hmm. it's cool to see that process really working. I think it's a great, great thing. Um, it, I gather the amici argued some version of the each query is a Fourth Amendment event, even though the information's already been collected. And the court, though ultimately finding a Fourth Amendment violation, expressly rejects that interpretation. It says, no, that's not how we do it. We do it the same way the Court of Review has previously said. There is an overall net totality of the circumstances, Fourth Amendment analysis of the reasonableness of the entire architecture of the 702 system that includes the front-end collection process and vetting, but also the back-end minimization and, and other elements, including minimization and regulation of the querying process. And, and what the court was saying is, taken as a whole, the level of compliance problems we've got and the misunderstandings that have been described um, amount to an make the whole thing unreasonable. And then the court says, but you can fix it if you adopt certain uh, relatively easy to implement corrections that the amici had also recommended. And that's where it came to rest. The court of review doesn't even touch that issue. Right. So there is no court of review ruling on the Fourth Amendment question. It treats that matter as sort of solved by the larger data uh, gathering changes. So there were a number of tweets and headlines for saying like, you know, massive Fourth Amendment violation. Um, I think that gives it, that leads to interpretations and assumptions people are going to make who don't read the opinion that are wrong. I think it actually was a status quo interpretation of how the Fourth Amendment interacts with 702, not a revolution of any kind. And I think what the underlying story is, uh, 
yes, serious compliance instances, self-detected, self-reported, and now fixed through the process. So I take away from this, the overall architecture we've created seems to have worked pretty well here. So did I say anything I can get you to disagree with? Um, just not disagree, just sort of, I, I guess, I'm not sure how well it worked, um, right? And, and so, yes, it, or, or more to the point, I'm not sure that it worked by any reason other than a little bit of a fluke, right? Because the way that the amicus process works under the USA Freedom Act, it's up to the court, right, to decide to appoint an amicus. There's no mandatory right to participate. Um, and we're lucky in this case that they did. Lucky, or you could say like, no, oh, we've created a system where we've empowered the courts to make that call, and look, it works really well. So, but, but so, you know, there were people like me who were arguing pretty vociferously back in 2014 and 2015 that at least in 702 cases, of which there are not that many, because this is a, a, a annual certification, right? right? Um, not Title I cases, where it's a warrant against an individual person, but, but in certification cases, there should be mandatory participation by an amicus always, because we don't know how many of these cases are happening where there's no, where the court is, 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 not, is, is not inviting an amicus to participate. So I think this episode, yes, is the process working the way it's supposed to. Um, but to me, it only reaffirms the importance and value of having someone other than the government and the FISA judges in the middle of the non-Title I cases. It certainly shows, shows you some value. I mean, there's an, there's an unknowable question about what would the FISC and the Fisker have said if they'd had to litigate this issue and review these issues without the amici. Clearly, they, they recognized there was an issue. It's entirely possible they'd get to the same place. Um, but I think it's good the amici were there. Oh, no, I, I, of course, I, I agree with that. No, but, I know you do. Right. My point is just that I, I, I continue to believe that we need more than amici. More than amici? Why can't, can we be more than amici? That, 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 would have been a, that also would have been a good... That also would have been You're a, trying to get me get back into that define the relationship topic that I don't like. No, but I, 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 that, 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 there's, our, there's our backup episode title. Can, can we be more than a Miki? I'm writing it down. Okay, what, what more would... I, I hear two different things. There's how about a Miki is a great model. Let's just always have it locked in that the yeah. certification process yep. always includes a Miki yep. participation. Is that what you're saying, or are you further saying that you'd like there to be a more substantial role? I still, I, I would still like the special advocate to be a party because then you'd have a right to appeal, okay. um, right? That that you know, I'm I'm still concerned about context in which the government prevails before the FISA court and the amicus has a really good argument that the Fisker doesn't have any entitlement or opportunity to hear. Um, so you know, if I had my druthers, we'd go back to the Leahy bill, the you know the version that almost got through the Senate back in what the fall 2014. Um, but you know, even mandatory amicus participation, I think, would be an improvement. Okay. So, anything else to say about uh, the 702? Just that I mean, I think I, the broader sort of gestalt of this, right? Gestalt. Oh my gestalt? gosh. I don't know. This is you know, I have to atone for more. Um, the broader gestalt of all of this, I think, is um, once again, right? We have. Um, a, I think serious, if if limited, right? Serious, if limited, um, inconsistency in how the government is interpreting its authorities under 702, um, in a context in which the government has long said, you know, trust us, we you know we're not we're not being too radical here. And I just this just I think further underscores one of my bugaboos, which is why there always needs to be some kind of independent judicial review of internal government national security decisions, because it could be totally, Bobby, benign. It could just be, you said, you know, you said X and we understood X to mean Y, like that happens. Which, by the, which is what was represented here, that there was, there was errors in transmission of, of teaching and training to the- But that's my students. point, which is those errors are inevitable, um, right? Especially when, we're dealing about, especially when we're talking about complex and complicated technological surveillance capacities where the lawyers and the operators may not necessarily be speaking the same language. And it seems like as long as we accept the reality that there could be non-malicious but totally intrinsic structural error just in translation, that only further evinces the need for someone who isn't self who isn't interested in the outcome to have some ability to review what's going on. It's why I think we should be less allergic, right, to the idea of meaningful judicial review because sometimes it'll catch these errors in a way that actually helps the government going forward. So we can at least agree that in this <laughs> in this case we've got we've constructed constructed an elaborate version of such a system, yeah. and it seems to have done just what you said uh, in this case and ironed out. Took a little time, but actually not that much time in the grand scheme of things. Seems to have revealed 
and addressed, considered, and then settled yeah. uh, a compliance problem. All right. Uh, and as you say, there are going to be more because these are massive, complex, high-stakes enterprises that there's going to be human error. It's just going to keep happening, and that's not something we can make go away. What we need to do is design around it. Looks to me like we've got a pretty good design. So long as there's adversarial participation in the FISA court. That could be where, yeah, <laughs> could be a good point of disagreement. You know what else we can probably disagree about somewhere is some combination of either major league playoffs or perhaps we should start with China and the NBA as we turn our attention to frivolity before we run out of time. Although this is actually not that frivolous frivolity, right? It's not. This it's is, a hybrid. It's sports is, ball meets foreign relations. Um I mean, this is, you know, what am I, I mean, I, uh, we've been there before, right? Like, you know, I don't think it's actually possible to separate sports from politics, right? Like, they're all, like get the politics out of my sports. Uh, hello? No, there's, there's always potential, but this is remarkable. So we're, yes. we're obviously talking about... The Rockets. Uh, the Rockets owner tweets out uh, a, a symbolic support for the Hong no, Kong... No, no, the GM. The, the GM. Owner, the, the owner? Yeah, you said owner. The Fertitta had a very different take than Maury. Right, right. Well, the, their stakes are different. Their yes, interests are different. Indeed. Uh, so so Dar- Dar- James Dar- Harden had a different take. So Steve Kerr had a different take. All kinds of people had D- takes. Daryl Maury, right? Is, is Daryl Maury? Yeah, I think so. Right, is the GM of the Houston Rockets. He, support, he expressed support for the Hong Kong protesters... And I say, I salute you, sir, for having done that. But China reacted in a... In wait, a wait, so express support while the Rockets are in China to play an exhibition game or series against Chinese basketball teams. Yeah, or, so or they were in route, right? Right. Yeah. It's not like he was just hanging out in Houston one day and was like, yay, Hong Kong. Right, right. So China topics are on his mind. He sends this out. And there's huge pressure immediately brought to bear. From all directions. Yeah. Um, and, and I got to say, I, I saw a lot... What I felt was a lot of very cowardly uh, backing away from his right to say and express what he feels. Uh, the, the government in China, obviously not surprising at all to me, but nonetheless, you know, in all sorts of ham-handed ways, begins pressuring uh, this particular set of business entities to retract and, and to sort of send a deterrence message the same way they've done to hotel industries, to airlines, to all sorts of, of foreign enterprises that have the temerity to say anything other than the official Beijing line on things. Um, they are not afraid to throw their weight around to punish and try to create a general deterrence effect, those who t- say things that are not party line, literally party line, I should add. Indeed. Um, and, and all that's sort of not surprising. What's disappointing to me was the initial NBA reaction, although then the NBA kind Adam of Adam modu- Silver got it right. He got it better finally in yeah. the end. It took him a while, but they got there. Yeah. Um, some of the players, you know, James Harden, I think, went way— uh, James Harden, I felt, went out of his way to say like some sort of more, much more friendly things. That well, was, James Harden has a has an Adidas contract. I was going to say, I was going to say, he's got a non NBA. He has a personal advertising revenue interest in that market, and I was disappointed to see him, you know, not seen past. But that. We, should, we should add. For, I was disappointed in Steve Kerr for yes. issuing. You know, Steve Kerr has has been very willing to engage yes. politically, domestically when including it's time, retwe- when it's, including retweeting me. When it's oh, has he? Yeah. That's awesome. And I like Steve Kerr a lot. Yeah. Former. Spur, a uh, great, great, talented person. Um, he's been entirely willing to engage domestically in, in harsh criticisms. Uh, I'm not saying they're not valid, but he's been very willing to criticize the Trump administration. But he sure suddenly had no opinions whatsoever on this, you know, this China question. Um, I thought that was a shame. So I, I agree. Um, better, better to stay silent. We, we should add, though, I mean, I, so, so for the for the non-sports ball listeners who haven't given up on us yet, the Rockets are an especially – it matters that it's the Rockets yep. um, because the Rockets have, ever since Yao Ming was the, what, the number one draft the draft pick, right? Yeah. The Rockets have been the face of the NBA in China. Right, right. They, the Rockets have – More a, than any other in team. In the same way that the Mariners had a special – For a while there yep. had a special Japan thing. Yep. Obviously, the Rockets have – they have a lot of financial interest. There's nothing tricky to understand this. It's just a – Money version, versus principle. It's it's the same thing we've seen in the tech industry with Apple's uh, willingness to go toe-to-toe with the U.S. government, but unwillingness to at least publicly cross swords much with with Beijing. It's another example of this. It, Hollywood's the same way. Yeah. Um, you know, Think about the Red Dawn remake and having, yeah. to, having to convert it to being about something other than China, despite the original so desires. I, I talked about, I, t- you know, I, I was talking about Red Dawn in class the other day, and someone was like, yeah, they, they were invaded by, I was like, by who? You better, you better say Cuba. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think this is a good, uh, it's a good reminder that there's always, there are always political undertones and sometimes overtones to sports, especially as sports becomes this increasingly cross-border, right, enterprise where, you know, 
athletes are going to have perhaps political principles that are inconsistent necessarily with the financial interests of either their owners, right, their sponsors, or even them themselves. Yep. Now, I think that's all right. But I also think this then ties the sports world into what the tech world and the uh, the other parts of the entertainment industry have long understood, which is um, they are wanting to make money and there's huge money to be had if they play ball with an authoritarian regime that will not tolerate any deviation publicly from the party line and will throw their weight around against American companies, often in ways that affect the free speech of Americans. Mm -hmm. And I see, I saw relatively little out of the Obama administration to provide the big brother protection. Maybe I shouldn't say big brother, that's different connotations, but but the- the, The Umbrella. The the umbrella protection of the the United States government for free speech of American corporations. And I sure don't see anything out of the Trump administration. Because the Trump administration is doing the same stuff, right? I mean, the Trump administration is going after people who are protesting. Exactly. So what a shame. Where is Where's the champion for for individual free speech? Adam Silver, apparently. Hey, I can get behind that. If he's smart, he'll turn that around. Of course, his ta- I thought his statement yesterday was much better. I mean, yeah, I thought it was. It was I, th- I thought the, I thought he ended up where he should have been all along. And I think it's worth reflecting that for the commissioner of a professional sports league who is employed by his owners, right? Um, you know, that's a pretty powerful statement. Um, it would have been much better if they'd canceled these exhibition Indeed. games right. and brought those NBA teams back after China canceled right. the and tour. For, and forsworn the money. Right. And say, you know, you know, th- this is not okay. Yeah. And by the way, if China doesn't want NBA basketball, awesome. Yao Ming now runs the Chinese Basketball League. They can watch those games and enjoy it. That's wonderful. If they don't want to hear what Americans have to say, I think the NBA should stand Stephon Marbury will be the, the, all, the MVP of all time. <laughs> there you go. Um, all right, so we should probably wrap up. Uh, I will note I went to Austin City Limits Music Fest this week, past weekend. Did you did you did you did you hydrate? I hydrated heavily because it was super super hot, which normally it isn't. Mm. This time of year is not normally in the nineties, but it got to the high nineties. And it was um, good. Uh, the music was great. Casey Musgraves was awesome. Good. Uh, I really wanted to see Lizzo. You couldn't get within a bazillion miles unless you camped out there pretty earlier. So you had to you had to cut out of Casey Musgraves early if you wanted to be anywhere close to Lizzo. So you, it was just impenetrable. Uh, I look forward to the point in my life where, where my children are old enough to either come with us or at least allow us to go. You know, there's a window where that's good. And there's Austin Kitty Limits, yep. a little protected grove yep. area that was yep. pretty great. Yep. Cuckoo Kangaroo was killing it. Um, like I'll, I'll still to get there. But... Also, then it very quickly is is replaced by the stage where your kids are there for sure, and they do not want to run around with you there. So we had a we had a blend of all that. That was pretty interesting. Um, should we say a word about next week and what we're doing? What are we doing next week? We're going to Cambridge. Oh yeah, wait, is that next week? Yes. Wow. We are taking the show on the road. So um, we are. Our plan right now is we're. Did you notice? I don't know what's going on next week. That's all right. You yeah. know, it's, it's listen. I mean, I don't know what's going on in fifteen minutes. You're right. That's uh, on the seventeenth. The week from the, the tomorrow. So okay, um, I'm excited. So next Thursday afternoon, we're actually doing a, not really a live show, but a live to tape show. Live to tape show at um, Harvard. At Harvard Law School, um, which, 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 which we think a uh, special guest and friend of the podcast, oh, J- Jack Goldsmith. Yeah, Jack's going to join us, which will be a lot of fun. So those of you who are you know Harvard Law listeners and or Cambridge area, Boston area folks, we will post information about it on Twitter once we have it. But I think it's going to be like 4.30-ish. Next it's a, Thursday it's a afternoon. late afternoon deal. Yep. Um, the the Harvard I forget the precise name of the group, but the Harvard National Security Law Society Association, yeah. Yeah, maybe Society. Uh, they've been fantastic to yes. work with on this. We're excited. We're really excited to see them in person. And uh, yeah, so but we'll no, have- no, nothing's going to happen between now and next Thursday that would give us anything to talk about. But <laughs> exactly. what what that does mean for the non uh, Boston area listeners is that uh, our show will be a little bit later in the week next week. We probably won't post it till Thursday night or maybe even Thursday Friday night. Morning. Yeah, we'll get out there Thursday. So night. just you know. Uh, Patience, please, but in the interim, um, you know, hope to see some of you in Cambridge and everybody else. Stay safe out there. Adios.